Freedom Fighters Code Gray. This is a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's taking place in our own backyard. How are pornography and sex trafficking interconnected? What are our laws here in Canada regarding sex trafficking and our laws around pornography? In today's episode, we're going to be addressing these questions with our special guest, Kevin Wilcox. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, Kevin, just to start off with, when did you first hear about human trafficking? And maybe you could share a bit about, too, your journey in getting involved in anti-trafficking work, because I know that you've worn different hats and been involved in different ways over the years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I feel like the issue of trafficking is something that kind of imposed itself on me when I was a kid. Like I, and not in a not in a pernicious way at all, but I was I was probably fifteen when I first started thinking about you know how I wanted my life to unfold and what I wanted to make of my life, what I wanted my life to mean, and um, I, I kind of grew up in a church context, and my church was uh, in particular very concerned about uh, anti-poverty work, and, uh, and particularly overseas. And I, I likely just caught wind of this notion of of what would have been called sex slavery in my context um, at the time. And and as I was um, as I was kind of forecasting what I wanted my life to look like, I came to a conclusion that I wanted my life to be. Um, what of my life to be of use to people who needed help and it was as simple as that for me i wanted to spend my life helping others serving others and i ran a what feels like a mathematical analysis in, in retrospect where i concluded that i wanted to be the most help to the people who needed the most help and at the time i couldn't think of anybody who who needed more help whatever that looked like than people whose um whose bodies were being bought and sold for sex and so um and so i made that decision very early in my life um at the time i was again trying to decide what i was going to do for a career and so i went and i i did an undergraduate degree at york university where where you studied um in something called uh, critical legal studies or law and society, and uh, and that was to prepare me for a law degree, um, which I studied at the University of Ottawa from 2016 to 2019, and really just focused on my coursework from like the start of my undergrad to the end of my law degree. It was really just about studying and preparing myself for for a life of advocacy. Um, and protecting uh, marginalized people, particularly uh, victims of human trafficking. And um, and then my advocacy really picked up from there, where I, I started uh, by giving a, a talk at a Fight for Freedom conference um, back in 2019, which was a huge honor. And I got to speak to some of the issues we're going to talk about today. And then um, my next step after that was to serve with uh, International Justice Mission, which is the largest anti-slavery NGO in the world. And I, I was deployed to work for them um, in uh, one of their South Asian offices. Uh, in the summer of 2019, I came back and just kind of hit the ground running with with advocacy like this and a number of the other things we're gonna we're gonna talk about today. But that's kind of been my start. It was a long process of of preparation, having made an early decision in my life that this is what was going to matter to me most, and um, and building from there once I once I had all the prerequisites kind of in place. I feel like there's so many questions I could ask just based on what you shared there and the different ways that you started to engage and get involved in anti-trafficking work, including how you picked your courses and which degree to study, but then also uh, doing an internship with IJM and Mm -hmm. learning from experience there. Um, But I do want to ask you about your research that you have been doing and also just what you've learned in your education as you've decided to focus on this topic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um I think I I learned relatively early on that um that there's a whole lot of foundational material that's helpful to know when you want to be 
uh, kind of an on the ground advocate and at least to the way that I conceived of it. Like when I, when I started down this journey, my, my hope was to really be as close to the stories of people who have been trafficked as possible. Like I, I, I wanted to be um, like, I kind of saw myself in an aftercare context maybe, or, or in a prosecutorial context, something like that. And so for me, it was really about shaping my education around being the best lawyer I could be and having the best kind of foundational knowledge in, in criminal law and, and in you know, systems of, of power and influence that create laws. Um, so it was to equip me just to be the best base lawyer that I could be to, in, in those contexts. Um, but then when I graduated from my law degree, I, I really felt like the trafficking specific piece was missing. And, and of course it would be, there aren't a whole lot of courses in law school on trafficking in particular. You can study sexual assault law and a number of other things, but, but I decided to move from the Juris Doctor program at U Ottawa into a Master of Laws program that I'm currently completing, um, where I really focused my research uh, on the issue of human trafficking, in particular, uh, Canadian human trafficking in the context of pornography. And so that's what I'm currently studying. I'm, I'm doing a whole lot of independent supervised research on that topic in, in particular. Um, I'm very theoretical right now, but also looking at kind of the relevant laws that we can get into today, today about that. Um, and, and in the process, I've learned that um, our legal system is actually um, as far as the laws are concerned, at least, our legal system is is really well equipped equipped to address this problem if it understands this problem correctly. And so I think that's that's something that really needs to be the push point for advocacy right now is um, is equipping uh, policymakers and advocates on both the right and the left on on the nature of the issue, on the prevalence of the issue. Um, and, and communicate to people the severity of what's happening right now in terms of human trafficking, particularly in the pornography industry, so that people know how to mobilize the existing resources and structures that we have to address the problem effectively. And so why did you decide to focus your research on this topic in particular, like focusing around the laws regarding pornography? How did you know your decision-making process look like, and why did you decide to go that route? Yeah, yeah, great question. I I made that decision because I felt like, um, as dark as it may sound, the pornography is 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 the future of of trafficking. So far as I can tell, I, I kind of saw the writing on the walls in terms of um, kind of the growth of the pornography industry and the growth of and prevalence of pornography consumption um, in our society as time has gone on, particularly in the last five ten years, as the internet has become really a household commodity. Um, and and concluded that um, because pornography is so is is everywhere, and because it's um, we'll say safer to to have somebody say watch a pornography video that you've made than have them come and see a client, because then you don't have to have somebody interacting with your client um, or having uh, interact with the person that you're trafficking. Um, I, I came to a conclusion that it was that traffickers were going to see that there's a lot of money in pornography. It's it's easier for them to keep people hidden, and that um, if we and that if they they kind of started to put these pieces together, um, that that human trafficking, as as we typically understand it, would start to gravitate towards the the production of pornography. Um, and that was just a product of me understanding that the world is becoming increasingly digitized, um, and so too, in my view, will crime. And and so it was really kind of a me trying to exercise some foresight in terms of where trafficking is going um, based on where the rest of the world is going. Um, 
And when I made that decision, that was in February, or that was in um, the fall of 2019. Um, it's actually earlier than that, but I started my research in, in the fall of 2019. Um, and since then, we've just had a, a deluge of cases of testimonials come out of that exact thing happening. And so it really feels like it's been a good move on my part to, to, to focus my research there. Wow. And so some of our viewers who are tuning in may not have even recognized that pornography and trafficking are interconnected. Yeah. So could you just take some time to explain the ways in which those two things coincide? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, I think it's probably good to just clarify for people what what actually meets the definition of trafficking, um, at least in Canada, to, to make that case as clear as possible. But um, what I think of pornography is digital sex work. Um, and I think a lot of people will, and, and that's uh, a lot of people, even any you know, sex work advocates would, would make that case as well, that pornography is a form of sex work. And I, and I don't think we can argue with them about that. I would say that that's true. Um, and so my hypothesis before I began my research was that insofar as pornography is a, is a form of sex work, it's going to be vulnerable to the same kinds of exploitation that sex work is. Um, and so... And so what's what's the connection look like between sex trafficking and pornography? Well, um, I would say the the easiest way to think about it is um, the easiest way to think about it is kind of in a bit of a fact pattern. So you you imagine somebody who um, you imagine somebody who's who's chosen to traffic somebody. They've they've um, they've done what often happens, you know, build a relationship with, with this person, you know, maybe they're in high school and, and they move in together. And in the context of that relationship, they begin to produce videos of, of pornographic material of them engaging in, in sexually explicit behaviors. Um, and then those materials uh, then get sold um, in a, in say Pornhub, for example, which we'll talk about later, or they get uploaded to pornographic websites and, and get distributed. Um, a viewer of that material, um, is not necessarily going to be able to tell based on the, the way that that material is presented that that person is being trafficked um, in large part because that person who's being trafficked may not also recognize that they're being trafficked, right? Um, this happens lots um, and, it, and it forms, um, it's hard to say how much of what I would call kind of the contemporary pornography industry depends on these kinds of models. I would say that um, this is probably not the majority of the pornography that you're seeing, but it, it's, it's, it's a prevalent enough phenomena that it's that it's out there that it's easy to find, and that um, as a viewer you're not really going to be able to tell when it's legitimate and when it's not. Um, I could I could tell lots of cases about some of the more I would say aggressive examples of this kind of thing, um, but I want to I want to be respectful of our time here. I, could I could I tell a, a specific story yeah, one of these testimonials? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great. Um, and so just after I started my research, a case in, uh, came out of California that described exactly what I call pornography trafficking in my research. Um, there is a there is a a relatively uh, mainstream um, pornography uh, production and distribution company out of the United States um, that kind of had this model. I don't want to give the name because I don't want to drive traffic to that business anymore. But um, but but there's this there's this uh, organization this this pornography distribution website that 
their, their model was they wanted to show viewers examples of people who had never done pornography before, were only doing it once, and then would never do pornography again. It was this kind of amateur, um, you're new to the industry, you know, kind of thing. The idea is that you're supposed to feel as though the person that is being featured in the pornography is somebody that you might otherwise know. Um, and that's that's part of the shtick or the fetish, if you will. Um, and and so what would happen is they they fronted themselves on Kijiji and whatnot and, and Craigslist as um, offering modeling jobs to people. And so there's this one case where a, a, a young law student in the United States was looking to make some extra money one summer. She goes on Craigslist, sees this modeling job. She contacts the person who's presented the modeling job. They find out that she'll be having to shoot one pornographic video. It's 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 just one. Um, it's going to be created for a, a private client elsewhere in the world, not in the United States. Um, he will not be able to copy the video because we're going to use technology to make the DVD unburnable, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, one and done, you come do it, and then you leave and everything will be fine, we'll pay you. And so um, she shows up at the hotel where they're doing the shoot. She's not been shown a contract yet. She's shown a contract for the first time after they've all been drinking together to prepare for the shoot. Um, she's rushed through reading the contract. Um, she's inebriated. This is all part of the design. She shoots three videos and then she leaves. The videos feature all of the things that pornography would often feature, just explicit sex acts and so on. Um, she's then... Um, She's then horrified to find out that uh, these people who she shot the video for have um, wide distribution in the United States and have chosen to distribute her videos accordingly. Um, and not only that, but have chosen to contact her employers, her families, and her university colleagues um, to drive traffic to the video. Um, so she was among um, she was among another uh, over twenty plaintiffs in that particular case that successfully sued the the organization um, for forced fraud and coercion in the context of a contractual dispute. They won that case, um, which is fantastic. Um, and the the people who own and operate the website have now been charged with with trafficking and persons offenses in the United States. And the owner of that of that corporation has fled the country, and the U.S. is pursuing extradition now. So. So that's an example of, of trafficking for the purposes of producing pornography. And, and, I, and I really want to emphasize that this is not kind of the underbelly of the pornography industry. These people who did this were very ubiquitous. And anybody who's struggled with a pornography addiction or a pornography habit before will likely have heard the name of this corporation before in the context of their struggle. It's very open and out there. And it's, and it's not at all hard to find this material. Wow. What a heartbreaking story. And Kevin, thank you for the important advocacy work and research that you're doing to help educate others about the realities of the industry and to um, stand up for those who have experienced depression. Um, we're gonna come back after a short break and continue our discussion. Writers Code Gray. In this episode, we're discussing how pornography and human trafficking are interconnected, as well as our laws in Canada regarding pornography and our laws in Canada on human trafficking. So, Kevin, welcome back. I'm grateful so much so for you taking the opportunity today to share your expertise and your research and your knowledge on this topic. So, let's just jump right in here. And I was wondering if you could shed light on what are our laws in Canada right now regarding human trafficking? Yeah, awesome. 
So, so really simple. Uh, the Criminal Code of Canada addresses uh, human trafficking um, as the crime of trafficking in persons. And there's a, there's a separate offense for trafficking and trafficking in persons, trafficking of a person who is a minor. And so the only difference between those two is just the age of the person that's being trafficked and, and the sentences are higher for trafficking of a minor, um, as one might expect. But what makes what what constitutes the offense of trafficking in persons in Canada is, is actually it's 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 built into the criminal code near the kidnapping offenses, which I think is a really helpful way of thinking about this. Um, it's about um, exercising control, direction, or influence over the movements of another person for the purposes of exploiting them. That's kind of the, the big, the two big pieces. And so you want to exercise control, uh, direction, and influence over their movements for the purpose of exploiting them. Was the prohibited conduct and the prohibited purpose. And the prohibited purpose of exploiting just means, um, it's like, it's a little bit complicated, but the idea is that if I was an outside person looking in and I saw you um, and I saw you kind of in connection with the person I think is being trafficked, and I believed that that person would be fearful for their life or well-being if they did not perform the service that you're asking them to perform, then that person is being exploited. They don't have to actually be afraid. I just have to, as a reasonable person, think that that person would likely feel afraid based on the actions of the person who's trafficking them. So that's what exploitation is. It's kind of an unintuitive word in the way we often think of exploitation, but but in the context of, say, sex trafficking, um, you can kind of see how it fits relatively well. If, I, if I'm watching a, a couple, we'll say, and I come to conclude that that person, the, the woman doesn't really look like she feels safe, and then I ask some more questions and I find out that she's like that her movements are being controlled by the person that she's with. And she's maybe um, engaging in sex work on his behalf and doesn't really feel like she has a choice in the matter, whether she does it or not, it, um, without her well-being being at stake. Then as far as the criminal code is concerned, she's being exploited and therefore being trafficked, even if she's not really thinking of it that way. So that's the laws around human trafficking in Canada. So here, I understand we have something called the Nordic model, or um, in Canada, we call it PSEPA. Yeah. Could you explain what that is and what that means and who is charged and who's not charged as it relates to any offenses related to the purchase and sale of sex? Yes, definitely. And, I, and I'm glad that you, you distinguished that here, Michaela, because um, not everybody who engages in sex work is being trafficked. I think that's a really important point to make. And so in, in Canada... Um, just because somebody is is engaging in in sex work or prostitution does not mean that that the the person that's um, maybe overseeing that would be charged with with trafficking in persons. And that's a really important point to make. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other crimes involved here. And that's where BSEPA comes in. Um, basically, like you said, we we have the Nordic model of, of sex work in Canada. And all that that means is that um, when it comes to the purchase and sale of sex, the person um, that like the sex worker themselves is not necessarily committing a crime just by selling um, their sexual services to somebody else. Um, however, the person who would go to purchase those sexual services is. And, and that's really the main difference between our model and a model that might prohibit the sale of sex that would, that would fall on, that would make criminal liability fall on the sex worker themselves. Um, there's a number of other nuances there's a number of other nuances to to PSEPA, like um, like you can't live on the avails of prostitution, for example, and that's designed to get at someone that we might call a pimp. Um, and uh, but there's some certain exceptions made for you know bodyguards and drivers, things that would make the sex worker um, safer in the line of their work. But but at the end of the day, in Canada, the purchase of sex is not permitted, um, but the sale of sex is, and so that's how we address that in Canada. And PSEPA does that for us.
That's a really helpful explanation. Thanks, Kevin, for just helping to break that down for us. But what about our laws regarding pornography? What do they look like? Yeah. So, um, so real quick, uh, we've got we've got five big categories of law that deal with that deal with pornography in Canada. Um, we have the obscenity provisions, um, which are very old provisions. They're they're very old in, in most. Uh, sorry, they exist in in some iteration in many common law societies. But the idea is that you're not allowed to produce or distribute materials that feature the undue exploitation of sex. We had the Supreme Court explain that to us in in 1992, and since 1992, we've had about 30 prosecutions, and very few of them been successful. So as far as I'm concerned, the obscenity provisions are not particularly helpful, despite the fact that they seem to mean well. And so that's that's the first category. The second category is the child pornography provisions. These are alive and well. Uh, the, the courts use them, prosecutors use them, people are being prosecuted under this section all the time. And I'm very grateful and, and happy to be able to say that um, the Supreme Court just found last year that um, that candidate actually needs to increase its sentences around these issues because um, because the courts don't feel like we're taking uh, sex crimes against children seriously enough, and so that's so these these uh, these pieces of legislation are, are are used frequently and they're they're very they're very effective. Um, the third one uh, is called the publication of intimate images without consent, and that's about publishing publishing material. Um, of somebody who has not consented to its publication. And that's really important, right? And so it's about, let's say I'm in a relationship with somebody and we're engaging in, in a healthy sexual activity. We decide that we're going to record that for one reason or another. And, and then without me telling the other person that I'm with, I then choose to upload this material to the internet. Um, that is a crime because that person has not consented to its distribution. Um, this isn't about you know porn stars then deciding that they don't want their material published anymore. It doesn't really work that way. It's about couples breaking the the integrity and the privacy of their relationship by bringing materials that they develop in the context of the relationship out. So that's where that offense comes in. This also gets prosecuted lots. This is alive and well, and it's it's a very effective piece of legislation. Um, two more, real quick, making sexually explicit material available to the child. This is in the criminal code as well. Um, this, this is not meant to capture um, an organization like a pornography distribution website that fails to prevent children from accessing. This is about people using pornography to groom children so that they can commit a crime against the child. That's really what it's about, which definitely happens. And we can talk about that too, but I, I want to get to the last one, which is voyeurism. Um, this is about secretly producing sexually explicit material of somebody else. So this is your, this is your, um, camera in the bathroom, camera in the changing room kind of thing that, you know, somebody doesn't know that they're being recorded, they're changing, that material is then made. That's that's the offense of voyeurism, and that's also alive and well. We just had a case about that from the Supreme Court in 2019 that actually expanded the number of cases that this would apply to. And so, and so we do really have, I think, an awareness in the courts about how these kinds of offenses can can happen and we see that in the in the most modern cases and i think there's a lot of we can derive a lot of hope from that as a society that really wants to see human trafficking and exploitative pornography stopped wow that was so much information kevin and i didn't realize that there was so many robust laws regarding this and so many different laws as well I have so many more follow-up <laughs> questions, so we're going to have to have you on the show again. Yeah. Um, but I do want to talk about something that's a current issue that Canadians could potentially even get involved in, in terms of ad advocacy and petitions. And so I know that there's been a lot of things happening with our Canadian government and our legal system and MindGeek and Pornhub. So I was wondering if, you know, in a couple of minutes, if you could just kind of help break down 
what has been happening um, as it relates to Pornhub and MindGeek and what implications are there on the legal front? Yeah, totally. Um, so when, when we think of the pornography industry, we typically think of big, big corporations that are out of the United States or in Russia or, or, or China or someplace like that. Um, what I think many people don't realize is that the largest internet pornography distribution website in the world is situated in Montreal. Um, that's and that that's big news, I think. And so you think of these offenses like the obscenity provisions, for example, where you think the undue exploitation of sex that might feature, you know, violence or degrading and dehumanizing um, treatment of women or or others in in the context of pornography. Surely we would go after um, the largest pornography corporation in the world with with offenses like that. No, it's it's um, this this corporation seems to have been able to function with relative impunity for a very long time in Canada. And and when I say a very long time, I mean since about two thousand and six. And so as long as the internet has been kind of a base commodity in our lives. Um, what's happened right now is um, on December 4th of 2020, a New York Times article came out uh, by a man named Nicholas Kristof called The Children of Pornhub. It's a fantastic article. I encourage you to read it. Um, and what it did is it illustrated that there are, it, it showed a number of the testimonials that I'm, that I started by telling you about where, um, where children and, and I do mean children, people under the age of 18 um, are, are, were being trafficked in the United States and then having the material produced while they were trafficked uh, appear on the Pornhub website based out of Montreal. Pornhub, by the way, you'll, you'll hear Pornhub and MindGeek kind of talked about simultaneously. Pornhub is a subsidiary of an organization called MindGeek. And MindGeek has lots of different pornographic um, enterprises um, and Pornhub is one of them. So, so after this came out, um, the Parliament, uh, Canadian Parliament, responded appropriately and said, there's a problem here, we need to solve this, we need to fix this, we need to fix it now. And so they called a, an ethics committee where they where they invited Pornhub executives to testify, they invited the public to submit briefs about this, and, and a number of members of Parliament and other witnesses to come and speak to this as well. And the product of that inquiry has been a letter from 70 members of Parliament putting pressure on the government to, to act and to act quickly. And so that's that's been a very I've not I've not read that letter yet. That just came out two days before we shot this. And um and I would I need to read it before I understand the substance of it. But there's been a whole lot of push as a result of that inquiry to really crack down on the exploitation that's happening in in uh, Canada's worst kept secret, you know, the porn hub sitting in our backyard. Wow. And so for our viewers who are tuning in today, Kevin, what are some ways that they can get involved either to learn more about what's happening with Pornhub and MindGeek or even to get involved in advocacy? What are some things that you would suggest to folks? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think my first thing would be to say, if, if you're struggling with pornography, the first thing is don't don't feel shame about that, but definitely take steps to to pull yourself out of that. You know, you you just don't know the impact that that'll have on your mind, but you also don't know what's happened to produce the material that's in front of you. And I say that as somebody who struggled with pornography in the, in the past myself, like it's you can get out of it, and I would encourage you to do so as a first step to to undermining the the exploitation in this industry. And in terms of learning more, um, shows like this I think are really really helpful. You know, there's lots of really uh, incredible advocates in Ontario that are publishing really amazing work on this. Um, Michaela Beerman is uh, Michaela Gray Beerman is, is one of them. Cassandra Diamond publishes some some great work as well out of out of Bridge North. Um, you can read that that article by by um, Nicholas Kristoff. 
Um, I have to cut you off, Kevin. I'm so sorry. We're going to share some links to resources for folks in the chat and for this show. But thank you so much for tuning in. If you are watching the show today and you are in immediate danger, please call 911. If you're looking for information and support related to human trafficking, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. That's open 24-7 at 1-833-900-1010. Again, that's 1-833-900-1010. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and knowledge with us today. And we hope to catch you viewers next time on Freedom Fighters Code Gray.